Ladies and gentlemen, we are super stoked to welcome Dr. Kathy Dooley with us for the Evolve Achieve Thrive podcast. Yay! Oh, hi, Kathy! Hi! So glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so honored. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. We're honored to have you on. So for people who don't know Kathy, Kathy is a chiropractor. She is also an anatomy instructor at the Einstein College of Medicine at uh, Yeshiva University, also the adjunct instructor at the New York University College of Dentistry, and a teaching consultant at Weill Cornell Medical College of Cornell University, also the lead instructor of the Neurokinetic Therapy Seminar Series, and the lead instructor and co-founder of the Immaculate Dissection Seminar Series. So we met through the NKT series, and again, for people who don't know, very broadly speaking, movement assessment and dysfunction correction in the human body with neurokinetic therapy and also with immaculate dissection, but very two different kind of uh, protocols to achieving that. And um, I've taken her courses, Jude's taken her courses, and uh, you know, I consider you a mentor from afar. So thank you very much for joining us yeah, on the, on the course. Too. Me too. Oh, that's a great cool. honor that I take seriously. Thank you. That's great. It's, uh, so we thought we'd start the conversation off about, you know, talking more about yourself. Like we know you love talking about anatomy and physiology and everything else associated with it. But um, we're very curious about our guests when they come on. And we're very curious to learn about uh, who they are, where they came from, like, you know, what drove them onto the track that they're on. So I figured yeah. a good place to start would be um, understanding uh, how you came to be on this journey, basically. Uh, like, did you always know you wanted to be a chiropractor, anatomist? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, exactly. Like working with the human body or was it just, you know, once once you got down this track, you realize this is what you wanted to do. How did it even come about? Yeah, when you're on the right track, it seems to appear, right? So right. Yeah. when I was uh, younger, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, a trial lawyer. I was very into being on stage. And that's probably obvious for anyone who's watched my YouTube. Uh, it's, I'm very yeah. comfortable in front of a camera, very comfortable in front of people. Uh, that, that was part of my DNA from my father and my mother. They're, they're hilarious. And, uh, and my father was a musician, so it was uh, very easy for me to, uh, to adapt to uh, being on stage and, and being a performer. So that said, um, I thought that I was going to be a lawyer for a long time. And then I got bitten by the theater bug when I was in high school and was a performer, a singer, that kind of stuff. And so uh, I, I really was into that. I decided to pursue that as a profession. I was a, a science major. I was always kind of that mixed kid of like, I was really good at science, but uh, really, really loved the arts. And I couldn't make a decision. I don't know if you guys remember that show from the 90s. It was called Felicity. There's this like TV show. Yes. I, I really no. resonated with yeah, she wanted to be a doctor, and then she also right. wanted to be uh, uh, an artist, and she couldn't really decide which one she wanted to be, and, and, and that was very much my oh. beginning stages of the science and the art of me was, was pulling me in different directions. I was a theater major in college and very miserable, really miserable. It just mm. Everyone was telling me that I should do it, and I think I talked myself into doing it because people congratulate you enough and tell you you're good at something enough, you feel like that's what you're supposed to do, rather than internalizing mm. and figuring out mm. what you want. And so I was really sick from the ages of 19 to 23, had a really bad eating disorder. I, I was really struggling internally, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. I, and, um, and then I, I started to get into health because I wanted to make myself healthy. And I never thought that I would be a doctor of sorts and, and certainly not what I'm doing now. But I went to a chiropractor. She was amazing. She helped me. I had, anxiety is how I got into chiropractic. I, I had crippling anxiety and she was like, well, I think it's your neck. And I was like, what's that got to do with anxiety? It was like a lot, actually. 
she started telling me about the sympathetic nervous system. I was like, what's that? And I didn't know what anything was. I was 21. Yeah. So I went to chiropractic school. I had a terrible uh, experience with anatomy at first. I was, wasn't very good at it. It was my worst board score. Still to date is my worst certification, board certification exam score, which is so ironic and ridiculous. Uh, I was coerced, basically, into teaching anatomy as a tutor. They needed tutors. And I was, my friend, Dr. Ross Maddox, who is this amazing uh, DAC bar, he's, he's got a, um, a, a diplomate in radiology. He's a chiropractor. He's brilliant. And, and he was like, Kathy, come teach anatomy. He was like, no, I, I'm terrible at that subject. And he was like, no, we really need you. He really bullied me for a while. I mean, in a good way. Oh, you know, he was like yeah. persuasive. And he was like, Kathy, come on. You'll make, <laughs> 10, you'll make 10 bucks an hour. Most of the time, people won't even be in there. You'll, you'll, you'll get to do your homework. You get paid for it. That's how he got me. You get to do a pay to do your homework. And I was like, really? And he was like, okay. And I took a test. I barely passed the test. And, and, and I started to study it really hard. And, and it was a real weak spot for me. I think it's a real weak spot for a lot of people. So um, the um, the anatomy bug bit me, and uh, and I decided to get a master's degree in it. it got, I got I got bitten by that bug, and and I was getting certified in this uh, technique called ART, active release technique. And there was a lot of anatomy, and I was like, I do not know anatomy enough to be decent at any of this. And I got certified in ART, uh, full body certified. The whole time I'm thinking, I I, I gotta know this better. I accidentally mm. click on a link to, uh, I, I meant to hit career database and I hit career opportunities and, and on this website for jobs. And as fate would have it, there was this pilot program for a master of anatomy. They needed a chiropractor to study anatomy. And I was like, uh, well, I'd have to like not practice chiropractic very much for, for three years. And I'd have to go all in mm. dissection, the whole deal, a dissertation, you know, the whole thing. I was like, I think I want to. And so I make this jump and life was never the same. It, it led me. And then when I, I finally felt that contentment you feel when you're on the path that you're supposed to be on that, that yeah. it wasn't easy. I'm not trying to say it was easy. No. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, but it was just an ease, a, mm. um, a relaxation. Uh, I was like, Oh, right. That is what I'm supposed to do. And, um, yeah. and it combined that, the science part of me with the art part of me I had to speak in front of people I had to lecture I think that's what I wanted to do when I was a kid I wanted to be a part of something bigger than me and uh and I didn't realize what that meant and I didn't want it to be fake I didn't want to act you know I didn't mm. want to do that I didn't want to be characters I wanted to be myself sharing something mm -hmm. and, and getting people excited about something that mattered to me and nothing really mattered to me mm -hmm. in that way until anatomy did and it's 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 anatomy study I've been studying anatomy since what 2003, so it's a, it's been a while. It's been 18 years, and mm. it's uh, it's this thing that never ends. I never get bored with it. It never gets old. I I, I never stop wanting to study it more, and and I think that's what you know when you know you're on to something good. Hmm. What was? Kathy, do you? Oh, go on. Go on. Well, yeah. Uh, well, I was going to ask you, like, what was it about it which made you go, "Oh, this is it." I think that um, when I started to like help students with it and they started to ask me questions that were clinically based, uh, mm. I was, I'm, I was obsessed. Even as a kid, I was obsessed with understanding uh, why things worked, that engineering mm. part of you. And I was an annoying, pestering kid of why, 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 why mommy, why? <laughs> and, um, and my mom said it was constant. She said it was like, why this, why that? And she would tell me, go look it up. 
And this is before the internet. So I would go look up things in encyclopedias. And so I, there was always this very um, detective part of me. And anatomy seemed at first like this. I remember crying in chiropractic school, having the, the netter's anatomy in front of me and, and turned to the first page with the skull. And I was like, oh, there's no way I can learn all this. And, uh, and the thing about volume is that you take things in a small piece and say, I'm going to learn this piece. And then it does this Russian doll thing where you're stacking it within levels. And I think that's what, what made it really fascinating for me. And then I started to realize the better I knew anatomy, the more I could diagnose. The more I could diagnose, the more I could figure out the puzzle pieces and actually help someone. Mm. That what, what drives people, I think, to anatomy is the there's an altruistic part of it that you really want to give yourself to help other people. And I think that's what mm. anatomy does for me is it, it brings out my altruism in a huge way. Oh, that's beautiful. I was, was going to ask you, Kathy, um, as you've delved into the anatomy, as you've gone more into it, has the way the way you look at it changed? But have you I don't know, like you, you understand it from a level at one point and then as you dive into it, have you gone, oh no, actually it's different, it's changed, it's it's not actually like that, as you've kind mm. of discovered idea as well. Do you know? Yeah, that's you know a really I mean? good that's a really good question. Um I think that one can study something for ten thousand hours, and I'm well past mm. that now. I, I've just mm. like, twenty six hundred cadavers, right? So um when, when you get past the the veteran state. Then you start to get into the, I really don't know jack squat state. <laughs> and I'm, I'm surrounded by people constantly that feel that way. I'm talking about, you know, retired surgeons, people that have done reconstructive facial surgeries for 16 hours. And, and wow. I'm not saying these people never have made me feel small, not for a second. Hmm. They, they uh, would be collegial with me and say, Kathy, what do you think about this? And it really, it really was the first time I think... I think I was like 24 before I actually really thought about something instead of mm. remember that most of my, my early life was people telling me I was good at something. So I assumed I was, so I did that mm. rather than yeah. actually saying to myself, do I actually want this? Do I like it even, mm. you know, like how often do we look at what we're doing and say, do I actually like this? And, um, it, you know, I remember I was like uh, two weeks ago, I was in the lab and I was doing a 16 hour stretch and yeah. I, I was, uh, I didn't have to, you know, I was completely optional and I was just like, oh, I'm just going to do it. So I, I got to the lab, I think it was at 4.30 a.m. And I, I was dissecting. And then, no, I guess it was like an 18 hour stretch because I didn't think I left till 10. And I, I went out to pee, I think a couple times or something or, or, or eat. And then um, when I was doing it, I was in it. And I was like, I looked at the clock at some point and I was like, when did that happen? When did like 18 that. hours pass? And as I was, I was looking at it, I, I was looking at the anatomy. I'm like, when did this get easy for me? When did it get easier? Mm. And then when, when you feel that perception of ease, that's when you can actually go to another level of understanding the material. That's when you're not scared by it anymore. You're not fearful of it. And then you can really learn it at a level that you can mm. share it with other people. And that, I think, only drives me to, I think people probably sound, I probably sound nuts. Well, she's in a cadaver lab for 18 mm. hours. That's crazy. And it, and it just was like, no, it felt like breathing. It felt really natural. It felt really like uh, flow. Felt like a flow state. And, and, this mm. way, and, and I remember talking to Jonathan during it, and my husband during it, and, and I told him, you know, he was like, "Are you in there right now, still?" And it was like ten o'clock at night, and I was like, "Yeah, I think I probably should go home." <laughs> I don't know. Well, this is like, home. Yeah, and then he was like, he was like, you know, you're in the flow state. You're you're. No, you, when you're doing exactly what you were put on earth to do, it feels like 
breathing. And that, that, that opens you up to a whole level of understanding of the material. That, that's where I'm at at the stage I'm in where it's hard to kick me out of a lab. It's really hard. And then students, of course, they tend to ask you the really good questions that, that make you, I'm obsessed with teaching, not because I want to just share the knowledge, but because they deepen my knowledge. It's very Ooh. selfish. <laughs> it's mm. like, in, in, in the best of ways, it's benevolence through, yeah. through you know, self-care also. And uh, I think if I, if I spend that kind of flow state with the material, <laughs> then I can understand it at a level that that simplifies it for people. And that's that's my goal is to to take something that was really hard for me, and if I can make it just an infinitesimally bit more simple and fun for them, then mm. then that's that's the goal of, of the depth of learning the material. Mm. And what you've just described—that's performance. When you perform, like I was an, I'm an ex-musician. When you perform, you get into that flow, and you time goes away, and you don't. <laughs> so it just sounds like you described a performance, like you and the cadaver. That's exactly what it's like. It's amazing. Yeah, really. I have to set alarms when I'm with patients. I have to set alarms when I'm in a lab mm. to remind me to get out of it. <laughs> right. Because it's like, yeah. and I, I want everyone on the planet to have that kind of joy, no matter what they're doing to, to find a flow state. It is a very personal and uh, mm. I will never know anatomy in a level that's satisfying to me, which is I think part of the fun. I have colleagues that have dissected, you know, 10,000 cadavers or something ridiculous. And, and I watch them and, and they have this curiosity and the no hubris, there's just no ego left. And all there is is just my, my mentor, she just pulls books off of the shelf and just constantly flipping through pages. And, and, and you know, she's she just doesn't take anything for like, I know that. She's like, let me let me check every source that I trust and make sure that what I what I feel is is the truth is is is, is closer to a version of the truth. And I just respect that level of of uh, openness to learning. Mm. And then you bring it to us, which is awesome. I love it. I, that, that, yeah. That's the least I can I do. love I mean, it. The least yeah. I can, I mean, like it, Jonathan calls it like, uh, don't cover up your steps on the way up the mountain. Like if you yeah. can make, mm. if you can make something easier for somebody else, and I don't want anything to be easy for anybody because I think the struggle yeah. is part of it, but an unnecessary struggle okay. doesn't have mm. to be there. And so like there's necessary struggle and there's unnecessary struggle. and if someone's like right in front of me and I, I'm, of course I'm working with, you know, high level graduate students, Ivy league students, mm. you know, that I mean, I went to community college. I mean, come on. Like these, mm. these students have more cerebral space and resources from, than from which I came. And it doesn't matter. We're all in the same, you know, thing together, which is very unifying. And as they start to pull from you, like you feel like, Oh, in order to, to, to help them, not get a blockade to help them learn how to work around a blockade without depression, without anxiety is such a, a, a... She gone. There she is. Remember, we were talking about how um, the the sharing mechanism, like Judith asked mm. about the, the level of depth of knowledge and um, mm. so I'm trying to get this centered, uh, the, the, the sharing mechanism and how it deepens and, and changes the, the knowledge and, uh, and, the short of it, yeah, that when you spend that much time, you know, in a flow state and sharing it with other people, no matter where their backgrounds are, no matter mm. how much more intelligent than you, man, I'm surrounded by people that are so much more intelligent than me at all given mm. moments. And, and no one seems to care. All, everyone wants to just mm. uh, learn. I, I think anatomy does that for me. It really can be quite overwhelming. And then 
Mm. I remember in 2003 when I was handed, 2004, when I was handed that, that Netter's Anatomy and now you can hand it to me and, and take the labels off, wow. you know, yeah. and it, to, that's an accumulation of um, enormous amounts of, I don't know, I guess, I don't, I, I, I wish I felt more proud about it. I, I'd only feel like mm. there's how much more, like, I guess you get proud when you start to catch the mistakes in Netter or you get, mm. you're like, oh, that's labeled incorrectly or uh, that, that becomes more exciting. Uh, but the, the knowledge depth is something that I, I hope will keep going like, like that Russian doll theory. <laughs> mm. Yeah, for sure. for sure. I mean, there's like, there's so many things that you've said in that last segment, um, which I want to explore is like, I'm like, where do I begin? But like, first part of it is, um, well, I'll go, I'll go where I, the first place it took me, which was those 16 hour days interspersed with, um, seeing clients, teaching people over like seminars, um, the yeah. travel clearly as well. You're back and forth between <laughs> New York and Boulder, but not oh, just yeah. that you're <laughs> zoom. I mean, like you're zooming around the world whenever we're allowed mm. to be right. So, yeah. um, so like it's a three part question. Like the first part of that is, is how did you develop the stamina to handle that kind of lifestyle? And then the yeah. second part is, is how do you ensure you don't burn out? And yeah. then mm-hmm. like, I mean, thirdly, like there's an assumption there that there isn't a balanced life. Like what you're doing is precluding you from a balanced life. Like, so, so what is your, yeah, yeah, it's like, what is your idea of that as well? Because I've over, over time, I've wondered about what does balance actually mean? Because people are saying you need to have this imbalance and that imbalance, but then <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a, there's a, it's, I think it's a question worth asking, like what your idea of that is as well. Well, I have people in my life that work a nine to five and they have their weekends off and, you know, they don't have a balanced life at all. Uh, and it, it really is, I, I think the N equals one of what balance means to you. A balanced life to me would not be a, a nine to five. Uh, it wouldn't be at all because for those other hours, I was not seeking out passion towards something that I really feel like I've been put on earth to do. And I do think people get really, really judgmental about balance. They're like work-life balance, yeah, work-life balance. What does that I mean? Know, right? like, yeah. exactly. My husband and I talk about it all the time because he's, so good at uh supporting what i'm doing and it took me a really long time to find him i was 37 and not that i was looking for someone to fill that void or something i was just doing what i was doing and found him and mm. there, there was this person that didn't tell me i didn't have a good work-life balance i've been that has been chirping in my ear forever you need to make sure you don't burn out and blah 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 i mean i've right. seen people <laughs> I've seen people burn out that don't work half the hours that I work. So it, it mm. really is. I, mean, I marvel at parenting. I mean, Jude, you're a parent. How the heck do you run a Pilates studio, do what you do, learn all you learn, and then raise a child? And you have should a, do it. A, Thank you. Thank you. You just do it. And so when you're, when you're on the path you are, you're doing, and, and you find the balance within the path that you walk. It's not like you mm. achieve some balance. Like it, it, It's like you balance as you're on the walk when you find out things that work and don't work and that that's from where that internal balance comes so for me it comes from an early wake time to spend some time with myself centering to you know breathe to do a gazillion get-ups to to move through space to to answer emails i'm very communicative with my patients Uh, Mm -hmm. i i'm on a lot and that stamina that grinder is is was curious about it really does come from being on the path 
Mm. If you're on the right path, it doesn't steal from you. The universe feeds you. I mean, have you guys ever seen a fat mathematician? It doesn't happen. You know, like they're so into what they're doing and they're eating so little and they're so scrawny, a lot of them. Like, how are they able to do it? Because they're on the path and the path feeds them. So, you know, food, air are not just our only sources of energy, but the walking the path you're on. And like Jude said, you just do it. I don't feel burnt out. I do think before the pandemic, I was getting close to too much travel for mm. me personally. And right. I know because I fell asleep at an airport waiting for my flight to board and I didn't even hear them call my name. Wow. <laughs> and, and that was the whole thing. And that, that, cause I never really felt that tired that people feel cause I have like a, cause when you're on the path, it feeds you kind of thing. But that's, yeah. I remember going home and we live very close to an airport. And so okay. I went, I took the cab home the whole time I'm thinking, I didn't get super upset. Cause I was like, it was really a big moment. And I remember opening the door and my husband's like, why are you here? And I was like, I fell asleep in the airport, missed my flight. <laughs> and he was like, what? <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, mm. I think I may need more sleep. Yeah. Or I think that I, have been doing something that wasn't right. So that was the, the world telling me that I needed to work on my self-care a little bit. And, and then, you know, the world shuts down and I had the opportunity to really do that. And the way that my life has changed, I guess, in the last year, like everyone else's, is that you had time to reflect that you didn't have before on what you weren't doing that could make you that much more healthy. Yeah. And for me, it was maybe get that seven hours a night. So the magic stamina for me was walk the path you're on it eat nutritious food it's an obvious statement make sure you're digesting your food make sure you're doing your breathing training make sure you're doing your fitness training and then you know these are non-negotiables they're not you don't get a pass it's like teeth brushing. It's, no, you yeah. don't get a pass. and for me i probably was not sleeping to match the amount of time zone changing that i was doing hmm. and so that i know that sounds really simple sleep eat <laughs> And that's the thing, right? It's so lost. It's so lost, that's isn't that, it? Yeah. I that's what it is. Some, I don't take some magic elixir or anything. And and, I, and since mm. I was young, I, I do think there's a genetic component to this. Like my mm. mother and father worked like 40 to 60 hour weeks. My dad was also in a band. And I mean, barely ever saw my dad take a day off. So for me, that's normal yeah. to just be yeah. in that state of just constant. So there's a genetic and epigenetic component to that. And then yeah. once you flip a switch, like Jude said, you just kind of do it. Mm. And, and I, I really don't foresee any burnout. I mean, I'm 42 and I've been doing this since I Amazing. was 24. And before I was 24 folks, I was at school at 6 30 AM in school till 10 PM. Cause I was in every extracurricular club. I was in everything. You know, so if, if, you know, I was always like that kind of person that wanted to be on a path towards something really positive. So if you're on the path, aren't you on it? And then it gives you the fuel kind of thing. And my, my, my thesis advisor told me, not my thesis advisor, I'm sorry, my, my former boss told me, Kathy, you know, the brightest stars burn out the fastest. Hmm. And then I said, well, what about Keith Richards? Hmm. <laughs> what, what about, you know, it doesn't really explain people. I think that I, I get it. I get why people say, yes. Kathy, you're going to burn out. I mean, I, you, you've read my laundry list of jobs, you know, I've seen I have, it. Yeah. I've seen couple, you do it. 
yeah, I currently work for five institutions. I have, you know, I teach for NKT. I, you know, develop and teach for ID and ID collaborative. And, um, and, and I'm always in a state of creation, which is really fueling to me. So like, where does it come from? Mm. It comes from not obstructing the, the flow of why you're here. And mm. I think that's the definition of heart attack. It's a definition of stroke. What, most of these mm. things are spasmodic, thrombotic, right? It's a, it's a stagnation of flow. And, and I don't think that living your life's path is any different. Amazing. Mm. And like, so where, because what's interesting is also is like you felt like you stumbled upon it. And when you did, you're like, oh, this is the thing. Yeah. So, and I find like a lot of people struggle with the idea of purpose because there is a lot of what you had, which was, hey, you're really good at this. You should do this thing. You're like, oh, okay, great. I'll go ahead and do that. How do you yeah. think, uh, what, like, what is, in your view, the most effective way for somebody to figure out for themselves what it is that they should be doing, essentially, that's like a, what it is that's calling them? You're, you're like wanting to know how you hear your calling. Mm. Yeah. And that is not an immediate state. And it, it mostly mm. you have to learn by doing and find out what you don't want. I think people mm. are so like, they, get, they, they let themselves get so frustrated by knowing what they want all the time that they don't take time to recognize what they don't. Mm-hmm. And like you could, I remember my mom, my mom and dad were factory workers, right? They did right. not like their jobs, but they did their jobs and somehow raised three children on collective $30 an hour. How do you even do that? Mm-hmm. But they, they That's never, amazing. they're incredible. They, they, they were so great. And, and um, when I watched them, you know, in their flow state, you know, they were in, they were in meditation. I watched them, you know, moving. They weren't kumbaya on a mountaintop. They were like gunning an engine, but they were consistently not, they never broke down. And, and when I watched them, I was like, you know, I would watch them do things that they didn't like with a better mindset too. But then find, like I asked my mom, what, do you, what did you want to do on this planet? And she's like, be a wife and mother. And it was so dissatisfying to me as a young person because I was just okay. like, you know, not, not because I, I, I don't think people should be wives and mothers. I was just kind of like, is that really it? But I saw mm-hmm. that when she was doing that, that was her path. And everything else was ancillary. Mm-hmm. Everything else was extra and beneficial. I mean, this woman is so positive. And, mm-hmm. and, and I was like, oh, so it's not really what you're doing, but how you're doing it. And, and, and your mental state during it. So my biggest advice to people is, you know, even if you have a crap job that you have to be in because there's a goal to fulfill like rent or uh, paying back student loans, whatever, that when you're in that, when you're in that job to find a flow in that job, to, to find a flow, whatever you're doing, when you're vacuuming, when you're like, when I'm weed eating, which is one of my favorite things to do. Uh, I, I just try to find, you know, a, a place of, 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 of presence and, and peace with my breathing. And I tell people like what my husband would tell you too, um, He's a breathing coach. He's a very, very good one. I would say the best. I'm kind of biased, but he, he, he talks about stop making it all so complicated. Breathe in for five, breathe out for 10, breathe in for, that's so hard for people just to, you're to, telling me to God. accept. And it, it's not about, he, he talks about like thoughts being bubbles that you pop. It's not like you have to deny thoughts. And I think yeah. that people get, they get, they um, perseverate and don't let themselves enter a state of, uh, being able to be okay with things coming and going. And I think that when you let things go and let things come, then your path starts to get a little clearer. And I know mm. that's what happened to me. Like, can you imagine if Ross hadn't bugged me to, 
to be an anatomy tutor. I'm like, Amazing. I don't know. Who knows? My life would have went somewhere completely different, but I allowed him in. I allowed, mm. like, I allowed the universe was telling me, do this, try this. You know, maybe you should listen. And then, yeah. I guess my my quickest advice to someone who's struggling with their path is to talk less and listen more. Really, mm. really listen. Like when we're, when I'm with a patient, I barely talk. It's probably really hard yeah. to believe, especially from this call. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, <it's great>. but, <laughs> When I'm with a patient, the lecturer must I, listen. Oh my god, like I listen way more. And, and when I'm in a classroom, mm. you guys have probably been there. People get really yeah. nervous when I when I put them on the spot. Like I put yeah. you on the spot before, Jude. Oh like, yeah, oh, Jude. terrifying. And then it's like, <laughs> and then you get used to it. You get used yeah. to it once you get the format and you understand. I, it's like we were talking about this the other day. But there's just ask the questions. It's okay, mm. yeah. you know. It's okay to ask the questions because Kathy Dooley is going to answer that, and it's fine. To ask the silly questions, so I, I want I want anyone listed. around me to be to be okay to to ask something and and yeah. I my um, teaching evals for the universities they uh, consistently they put you know makes me feel comfortable makes me feel yeah. comfortable and, mm-hmm. and then oh, on my last like I just taught an EKT course and someone called me intimidating mm-hmm. and it was like so crushing at first I was like no mm-hmm. that's not what I, and then I had to say no Kathy that's not what you project it's what's perceived. Yeah, you can. But I'm. I really like constructive criticism. So I was like, okay, like think about what what they meant. And mm-hmm. um, I was thinking about. I was reflecting back on my experience. And and he had the student had written me later and was like, you know, that was the most amazing class. I love NKT and and oh my god. And it wasn't that. He said Kathy Dooley is intimidating, but I didn't read the next part because I was so caught up on that. Mm-hmm. Is he said but inspiring. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, he was intimidated yes. by the situation, but I don't have to take it so personally. And and so mm. I think we take it personally when we ask questions that we feel stupid or we feel, you know, like, oh, we're going to be wrong. And um, yeah. in a global level, we don't encourage curiosity. We want people to get A's. And we want them to get 4.0s or 5.0s or whatever your system yeah. is. And we don't encourage encourage the curiosity of what this. And at Einstein, we have these on each of the labs. We have a sign that says, "Don't ask what it is; ask what it could be." Hmm. So my students, oh my. They, they they're encouraged to say, "Could this be the axillary artery, or could this be something mm-hmm. else? Can I get right. Dooley to help me?" And when I walk over to the students, I'm like, "Well, what do you think it is?" Hmm. And then they're yeah. like, I think it's the axillary artery. Support your answer. And you, I'm sure you guys have heard me say that in a class. Support your theory. Yeah. And, and they're Tell like, oh, okay, well, I have, I know the axillary artery is posterior to the median nerve and blah, blah, blah. Great. So that's why you're getting to the answer that you're getting. And that, that explores your curiosity. So questions are never stupid. I think that people, that they feel, they're afraid they're going to feel stupid. But it's only through the, the things that you get wrong that you can even learn or the things that even question why you know what you know you got to get a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, completely. <laughs> you got to get comfortable with being like, I'm super uncomfortable all the time. That's why I'm a teacher. Yeah. Like, there's nothing that will make, you guys mm. know this, you guys are teachers. There's no way to make you feel more uncomfortable than a student. Mm. Yeah. Because they're going to ask you something you just may not even have thought before, right? Yep. So you're just going to be put on the spot yourself as well. So, all yeah, completely. Time. They ask me, sur- I'm not a surgeon. Time. I'm not a surgeon, but they ask me surgical questions. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, let me think about that. Let me think if I know anything from my database. If I don't, let me go look it up for you or let me go grab you a surgeon. Let's all talk about it. And then by the, before you know it, then you can start a- answering things. Well, this is what usually happens in surgery. And, and then you can start to, to share things. It's only through the, the exposure 
of the absence of what you don't know that you can even explore the depth of what you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, um, which kind of, which goes back to the, what you were talking about having done anatomy so long, you can look at the Netta book, you don't need the labels in there now, you can, you can put the labels in for yourself. Sure. But here, the, the beautiful thing there is also you realize how much you don't know. It's like a Dunning-Kruger effect graph, right? Oh, is, man. Uh, how, like, and, and then being at peace with that, there's, there's so much that comes with just not knowing. Like, I used to be somebody who was like, if I don't know, I feel like a bit of an idiot. But then I just completely mm. started working on growth mindset and just thinking, no, if I don't ask this question, it's that whole thing of, you know, if you ask a question, if you have asked a question, you're a fool once, but a master for the rest of your life, something like that, right? Yeah. But if you never ask the question, you're a fool for the rest of your life. So mm. you just have to be able to have the courage to do that and then put yourself forward to continue to do that. There's, um, um, but yeah, that's what I find quite interesting is just the idea of getting to, at peace with knowing that there's so much that I know, but there's that just reveals how much I don't actually know, which is bigger yeah. than the things that I do know. Yes. And so, yeah. and so, and like, that's just kind of like a metaphor for life. So it's like, if, if you're not going to appreciate that fact, you're going to be anxious about life going through all the time instead of just curious. And, and that's, mm -hmm. um, and that's something that actually a client of mine recently had that kind of revelation as well, which was having a goal and dreading the process to go and achieve <laughs> that goal. And then, so, so yeah. we had that conversation around, okay, well, what if like there was a whole process around it, but essentially it came down to introducing curiosity and excitement to the process. Mm. And now in just in a matter of weeks, mindset is completely flipped and uh, the ability to, uh, the, the ability to be on that journey and go and uh, aim for that goal is something that is exciting to this person now. It's not something that takes away from their life. So, and that goes also back to what you're saying about um, how you don't burn out and how you have the stamina for the days because I think the biggest thing there is is like that purpose essentially is yeah. when you have that purpose and you know exactly why you're doing something I mean I think there's even research that's been done on people who um, perceive stress differently um, based yeah. on the there's purpose that on they're on there's a TED talk right right on it um, it's um, the, how to make stress your friend is the name of the TED talk. Mm. And um, mm. it's Ke Kelly McGonagall, Dr. Kelly McGonagall. She's a stress management oh, specialist. No. I, I, it's one of, my, one of my favorite TED talks. And she talks about people that perceive their stress versus people as, as stressful versus people that didn't perceive themselves as stressful. Their coronary artery dilation is different. Really? So I, I don't, if I don't perceive my life as stressful, then it contributes less to my heart disease. Then if I can perceive my life as stressful, then I might, <laughs> you know, increase my chances of heart disease. And, yeah. and that, that, that's part of the, the perception of like people will try to put their crap on me and say, God, you work too many hours or you just work too much. And mm. I'm like, OK. Yeah. It's going to say, how do you deal with that? It's like when someone says that to you and they put all that stuff on you, it's quite hard not to take it personally and to almost oh, put up a barrier. Yeah. How do you deal with that? That's a good question. Um, it happens to me all the time, probably daily. Right. Like, like the say. other, like, like it was like Wednesday night. Yeah, Wednesday night, Tuesday night. I I had like six a.m. patients and nine thirty p.m. patient. My wow. my last patient left at at ten fifteen, and so I, I worked this really long day. And um, it's very important for me to give the energy, uh, the same energy, to the first client as the last client. And I don't want any like change in me. So I work really hard on that. Mm. And um, she said to me, she's like why are you still here? Like, why did you take this appointment? And I'm like, you needed me and I wanted to be here. 
And she's like, that's like so great. Yeah. I was like, oh, uh, I like, well, I think it's great that you're here taking care of yourself. Why would I not want to help someone who's taking care of themselves? That's just so killer. Awesome. Uh, and, and she, I, I think that people do come at me in the negative way too. Like Judas yeah. saying, like that, that energy of like, Kathy, you work too much. You're going to burn and they, out. And they screw up their face and why? And, uh, and it's, it's, it's almost like, what? Because they can't fathom it themselves. And it's like, how would you deal with Well, that? The, way, the way that I deal with it, my husband gave me a trick. He said, remember that you're all the same universal energy and you're only seeing a reflection of yourself. So okay. it was really just myself kind of saying to me, like, you're going to burn out. And, and I just kind of see my own face, you know, right. do that. And, and, mm. I, and, I, and then I reply back, Oh, no, I don't think so. You know, I really, really love this. I go, do you love anything? Like, I love this. And then they're yeah. like, and then they internalize and they ha then they have to think. You and know? they have and to look at themselves. It's not, yeah. And I'm not trying to make them feel bad. I'm not trying to make them feel bad. I'm just saying, oh, I say, no, I, I, I really, I think, I think this part of my life is figured out. And how, how do you really, how do you really argue with someone that stands in front of you at 9.30 at night, loving what they're doing. And well, what am I going to be doing at home? Am I going to go back and watch Friends reruns for a 50th time? <laughs> I mean, like, like I, I could do that. That's fine. And yeah. there's no judgment against that. But I can also be here in someone's energy space that seeks me out and wants me to also nourish them. And mm -hmm. that that is, uh, I, mean, you're, I mean, I'm not a parent. This is the closest thing I get. To, to really helping to nourish someone in this way. And, and, I, and I'm darn well going to do it as long as I, I have the capabilities to do so. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting because like on a similar thing, sometimes I'll just be it'll hit evening time. Like last night and a couple of nights ago, it got to 10 o'clock and I could like, I usually go to bed around 10 o'clock um, trying to get, get to sleep for about 11. But um, on this particular night, I was like, I was just antsy for something. I just needed something <laughs> to uh, satisfy my mind. So I put on your ID lecture about biomechanical breathing. Ah, and yeah, and, and so, yeah, so I, was, I, well, I mean, like, I, I go through the library and I'm like, I could be watching that. I could be watching that. I could be watching that. I just press click. That's all I do. I just click and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to watch this one. But, uh, but the point is, is like, I went to bed not feeling like I was working. I went to bed feeling like I'd nourished myself. And then the, like wow. last night was, I was reading, reading a neuroscience book that me and Jude are both reading. And, um, read that until I'm going to bed, but you know, it requires thinking because there's some concepts in there, which I haven't come across before. So it's like, mm. cool. But I go to bed, I have a good night's sleep, I wake up the next day, I still feel pretty good, right? Is So in some ways, there's the idea that when you're working for yourself, it's very hard to draw the lines between work and rest. But when, like, I think what you're excellent at doing is work feels like rest because you're so in it. And uh, and then that's that's where that's where you don't need to worry about any lines being drawn because it's, yeah. it is balance. Yeah, I, I feel like balance means so many things to different people and, mm. um, I, you know, I live in a place here in Colorado where, it, you know, there's a lot of meditation. There's a lot of, but I've met some people right. that are so anxious and, and there's this pretense of attempts towards calm being a look. And, mm. and I think people assume that I'm not calm. Like I'm the person that you want on a flight when things are going down. You know, like I, I'm definitely, I'm definitely the person that you want when, when there's disarray and, and, mm. um, and, and it's because I think I've trained myself to 
you know, oh, with all these intense, like, I deal with a lot of people with intense pain. People are really anxious. Like people, because I've suffered from anxiety in my life, people just mag, just are a magnet to me that, you know, with anxiety to teach me mm. how to share what I've learned to help other people. And most of it's through breathing, most of it through visualization and, and, and changing people's perceptions of what they think things look like. Like what does calm look like? I, I've met people that barely speak and they're the most anxious people inside and they internalize mm. everything. So it's, it's really about um, w- when you feel a calm, it can mean a lot of different things for people. And I, th- I think people mm. are never given the right to, to explore that. So they, they think that calm means laying there or calm mm. means or, you know, you know, work life balance means I'm going to work these amount of hours and rest these amount of hours. And what does that even mean? Like that, 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 that's such an arbitrary, non-provable thing. Like it's, it's mm. so N equals one. Wow. Yeah, for sure. I get the, I get the feeling that a lot of, a lot of health and fitness advice is basically geared around that, uh, let's call it that nine to five lifestyle. It's, you know, how do you demarcate uh, between working and play and rest? And um, when, you know, I had this conversation with another, like, uh, friend of mine about what is fitness. And we're constantly looking at it from that physical perspective. But I've really widened my scope now because at the end of the day, it's got to involve, like, social uh, social health, i.e. do you have good relationships? It's not just about nutrition. It's not just yes. about, um, it's not just about like physical fitness. It's not just about uh, managing sleep. And it's, it's, it's so many things that go into it because um, the idea of like fitness is being uh, fit for your environment that you survive. So, okay, well, what does that take? It's not just yeah. about physical fitness. So we have to look at all those different things. But um, when we are looking at these different, these different things, we've kind of, we've distorted our environment so much from how we're actually evolved that I think the realm of health and fitness that we're in is geared towards dealing with dysfunction a lot mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is, is what it is when, if we didn't have that so much, then I think it would be a lot more intuitive for people to just be healthy, be fit. Um, like, what do you, what do you both think about that? I, I love that you said that because I used to have like this, I used to struggle with this relationship with my mom. Like I, um, I was all me. I wanted her to do things I thought moms did, like ask about my job all the time or ask about my boyfriends all the time or ask about my business all the time. Or I don't know, like I had some, something in my head, some Hollywood version of what a mom was or something. Mm. And then, um, you know, I remember one of my dear, dear friends at the time, he said, why do you expect her to be anything? Why can't your relationship be unique even to the one that she has with your sisters right and i was like i was like oh crap i'm the problem and i remember talking to a counselor about it and she had said the same thing and then my rule is if i hear it twice that's really something you know to to think about and my relationship with her just blossomed huge when i stopped having these unrealistic expectations of what i thought it would be and one of my best friends always says you know the path to suffering is unrealized expectation or you know just like just trying to push things on people that it's not right. So when you start to look at your relationships from that on that, that different type of um, environment and, and then try to be malleable, um, it, it really changes. And I think I do have friends in my life that want me around more and want me to call more. And um, I, I do think that's something I'm working on personally. And, I, and it doesn't mean that I have to call them more just because they want it. 
Yeah. Just like, just like I, just like I don't, I may want my mom to call more and she's not going to kind of thing. So you have to kind of, you can reach people and you can, you can, you know, I don't want to say push, but you can experiment with what would work. And I I do think interrelationships and if you guys read the book, (laughs) neuroscience of of relationships, it's really good. Uh, Yeah. that opened my mind. A patient gave me that book and it opened my mind to uh, letting things be the way they are and letting it grow from a place rather than having these expectations placed on people too. But I do think relationship mm-hmm. nourishing can be just as nourishing as food. Yeah, I think absolutely. also, I think also with being a parent um, and, and looking at your parents as well, you realize that they are just people and they're trying to figure it out as well, right? Yeah. And they, and then sometimes it's like, well, why aren't you being a parent to me? And it's like, I, I, the, the, that was the biggest thing for me. It's like when I became a parent, suddenly I realized that my parents were just people that were trying to figure out the world as well. And they're, all, they're not going to play the way that you think. And, yes. and, uh, and it really opened up my eyes. And that's how I kind of take all my relationships now, that these are people and that's how they live their life. And it almost made me a bit more empathic to, to yeah. understand that. And I think that's what your counselor was saying as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I, I marvel. Like, I, I <laughs> whenever someone tells me, well, how do you work? Like, how do you do all that? Like, work and travel and all that? I'm like, I'm not a parent. Like, yeah. how do parents do it? it how, do, how did my mom work 40 hours a, a week? Different. She, she would come home, yeah. work, work, work. And I would see her read and go to sleep and then repeat, repeat, repeat. And she was happy. I was like, wait a minute. How how does someone work like a 20-hour day uh, to my 16? So I, I really do think that, um, that that food and the path that you're on comes in lots of ways. And I, I agree yeah. with you about the nutrition thing. Chinese medicine is really steeped in emotion and relationships. And, and that, you know, you can, you know, have spleen chi deficiency because you eat too much damp food. But you can also have spleen chi deficiency because you don't do some breathing drills or you don't you can have spleen chi deficiency because you don't get any fresh air or you can have spleen chi deficiency because you're overworking or you can have spleen chi deficiency because you are not expressing good relationships and nourishing relationships or you're worrying too much. There's so many ways to nourish the system and it is like uh, having an IQ and an EQ and a nutritional cue and <laughs> like there, there's a lot to it and you really have to find what your how you're not nourishing yourself to help other people and that can be in a lot of different ways I think you're really mm. right about that yeah amazing oh. as, as some wind just kicked in heavy there sorry sorry <laughs> I was going to s- s- change, change direction slightly, there we go. Um, but it's all related to like some of the things that you're saying as well, like in terms of health and fitness, because we've talked about, uh, you mentioned breathing several times there. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like um, I, I'm giving a perspective here. And again, tell me what you think is like breathing has been like the thing, especially in health and fitness for the last few years. Once it became part of people's consciousness, it just kind of blew up, right? A little bit, at least. It's still like, I still feel like there's uh, there's a lot of people who don't know enough about it to be coaching it to the level it needs to be coached at, but also to be even considering it. But mm-hmm. however, it's definitely, it's definitely the thing that's come out of say left field people are starting to incorporate it realizing this is necessary 
And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what you think that the next thing might be as well, because there's so many things that come along in health and fitness. Like before that, it was mobility. We need to hammer mobility work. Everybody should be doing mobility. And then breathing came along as well. And I still think that's got a, a long way to go before it gets left behind. Yep. But um, I was wondering if you got uh, any thoughts on what the next mm -hmm. thing might be. Yeah, I think it's going to be light. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's already happening. Um, like people are talking about far and infrared, near infrared, blue light, uh, green light. Uh, you, you see amazing neuroscientists like Dr. Huberman talking about mm. the effects of light. Uh, you, yeah. you're, you're seeing like, yeah, you're seeing like even like really controversial people like Jack Cruz and uh, so, some of your really mm. great uh, thinkers. Uh, no matter what you think about their politics, that they, they, they are really thinking critically, and hmm. I, I do think that I, I, well, as I, my husband and I are studying light, uh, he's way more advanced than I am studying light. But uh, talking about nanometers and frequencies, and and I noticed my life changed so much just <laughs> going from New York to here with the light exposure hmm. being closer up, like yeah. eight thousand feet up. And just like, whoa, this is a really different life. And it's not just mountains. It's not just thinner air. It's light. Uh, hmm. I think you're going to find that we're going to change all out our, like we changed our entire house. So we don't have fluorescent bulbs. We have um, wow. incandescent. And like when the sun goes down in our house, it's it's down. <laughs> it's dark. Yeah. And, and then when I go to New York, New York never shuts off. So it's just light, light everywhere. Yeah. And the, the difference in sleep quality, the difference in my mood, the difference in my agitation, the difference in my ability to get my words out is so much cleaner here. And I'm in New York. Mm. You can call it the frenetic energy of the city. You can say all of that, but why is it frenetic? What, what is it, what's different? Yeah. Is, is it light? Is it the radiation of, of light particles? I, I think that you're going to see more and more about light. Do you mm. notice that massively when you come from Colorado to New York? Do you notice a change in you like instantaneously? Really? Yes. And at first, you know, I'll admit, like, um, I like to, I like to discuss my experience with panic because I have, uh, you know, a history with it. And mm. I'm very proud to say, Knockwood somewhere right here behind me, uh, that uh, I, I'm, I'm getting a, a really big understanding of how necessary anxiety is uh, and mm. how we don't, we want to welcome it as a friend. And understand it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah. yeah, it's 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 a fascinating thing. And I love talking about that topic. So when I get off the the plane was uh the ride was very turbulent and I don't love turbulence, but I had a really intense work week and it was lots and lots of light, and I noticed my sleep was much more poor. You don't really know you're having poor sleep until you get good sleep, kind of thing. And then um mm -hmm. I and it was just light everywhere, and I had my you know, my hygiene, you know, my glasses and my uh my blackout curtains and the whole deal, but it's, it doesn't matter. It's still coming through in ways. And wow. so, and you're, you know, getting, you know, irradiated with it all day too. And, and so when I got off the plane, you know, Jonathan and I drove home and, and I'm still kind of wired and, you know, I feel like the neurochemicals, I feel norepinephrine, epinephrine releasing in a time that's not really appropriate. And then mm. as we come home, we have all incandescence and say hi to the dog, you know, whatever. And I, I sit down and almost immediately passed out. Wow. Like it was mm. such a sedation of beautiful chemical. And so I, I'm doing a lot of neuroprofiling with my patients on their neurochemicals. I'm studying like norepinephrine, epinephrine, GABA, serotonin, 
and in their interactions and not just with food, like Gorinder was saying, but with our lifestyle choices and our mm -hmm. habits. And I start saying these weird things to my patients and wear these glasses at these times and, and, and <laughs> no, no fluorescence. Yeah. And, and they're like, why does that work? They, they email me back say, why is that the best I sleep? Why is it? Sleep? Why do I sleep so great? My mouth tastes shut. Why, why is my mouth tastes shut and I sleep better? Well, I don't understand this really. And I'm like, okay, well, no. I asked them, I'm like, how, how much do you want me to go into this? And they're like a little, yeah. and I'm like, okay, here's the brief version. And they're like, how much do you want me to, how really do you want to learn about this? And they're like all the way. And then I'll go all the way that I, that I, <laughs> that I can share. And, and I think that it's it's a, it's a fascinating thing to to study that you're. I, I don't think we're a slave to our chemicals. I think we're in charge. Yeah. I yep. think that if you let the mind control the body, it's much better than the body controlling the mind. Mm -hmm. So what, when I experience anxiety, um, you know those that that very feeling that I'm sure you know, Jude. I don't know about. I know. You, but, the, yeah. the feeling of, uh, but most people know what anxiety feels like, and uh, at least to some extent. And so you feel like I, I'm very scientific about it, and I'm like norepinephrine, epinephrine. You don't, you don't have anything okay. on me. I've got GABA. GABA is going to be checking you. So I'm going to do what I can neurochemically to stop you. I'm going to shut the light out. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to do my five tens. And GABA, here we come. Just you know, come on, GABA, let's get going. So that norepinephrine, epinephrine. Yes, I, I appreciate you. You're very necessary chemicals. But you're just you're over you're overreacting a little bit right now. The situation I'm in does not require me to flee the situation. So let's mm -hmm. sedate. And um, I'm able yeah. to like when a panic attack used to take three days for me to get over when I was 21. Yes. Yeah, now, now now it'll take me 15 seconds. So it's like um, it's not it's not about not having anxiety. Anxiety keeps you alive. It's yeah. helped propagate the species and helped us evolve. So it's a necessary thing and, and you befriend it. Uh, and, and when you teach clients that it's okay to experience it, that to not vilify it, and, and, but to respect it, but to, but to teach them that they're in control, then the, the three Absolutely. days becomes 15 seconds and 15 seconds then becomes 10 seconds. And I'm looking forward to, you know, making it two or three seconds. I'm, I'm looking forward to that, that day in the future when I can do that. Right now I'm at about 15. I can, you know, feel the chemicals bubble and then, you know, one set of five tens and I'm pretty good. And then I just keep doing the five tens to keep it calm. And oh, then is that what you one, do? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Like and, and okay. Jonathan, will te Jonathan will teach you that on Saturday. Yeah, like, tomorrow. You'll, yeah. You, you'll learn. Um, it sounds almost too easy to work. <laughs> yeah, it really but does. It's, is it the nose breathing as well, though? Is it is it keeping your mouth closed and and, and breathing like that as well that John, helps that anxiety? Jonathan will tell you no. Tell me. Yeah, okay. Jonathan will tell you no. I I know that that. Everybody wants everything to be nasal all the time. And no. I do I do want inhales to be nasal whenever possible because there's increased resistance, better mm. filtration, nitric oxide um, activation. I get all that. I get why mm. people want people to inhale through the nose. Exhalation through the nose, I'm not as stringent on. Mm. And I want to talk to you about this. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it tomorrow. But, like, for the people that okay. don't get to join us, the um, – when you're exhaling through the nose, it's great. When you're exhaling mm -hmm. through the mouth, it can also be very great, depending on the situation and depending upon the need at hand. So if I'm deadlifting 300 pounds and I feel like I'm going to not be able to control my valvular system of seven diaphragms to be able to lift the weight, then I might choose 
for one of my diaphragms to dominate a little bit so that the other mm. ones can maintain a semblance of harmony rather than saying, I am going to increase my intracranial pressure, possibly, you know, not be able to exhale to a way that helps me maintain my IDQs. And then, then I'm going to, you know, skeet shoot a disc out my back because I'm lifting mm. 300. I really do think it's a management of, of attention dial and what's necessary for the task at hand. So when I see people inhaling and exhaling only through the nose, it can be great based upon the task at hand. So there's like, I, I might snatch with a 12 kilo for five minutes, all nasal. But if you give me a 16, okay. if you give me a 16, I might have to exhale through my mouth towards those last few minutes because I want to okay. make sure that I'm releasing enough tension with a good valvular system. So, um, yeah, I think that it's not, it doesn't have to be as stringent as everything has to be nose all the time, but yeah. I, I, I'm talking Thank to you right you. now. And if I didn't exhale through my mouth, like, well, I don't know sign language. So I'm not going to be able to, to tell you what I'm saying. Mm. That was super helpful. It has really a place. helpful. It yeah. Has a place. Right. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's always, um, yeah, there's people at the moment is like, everything's all about nasal breathing. And then, you know, I'm reading books, uh, social spark and play and uh, you know socials like you guessed it everything's about being social play is like everything is is all about play and uh you know why we sleep matthew walker's book exactly uh, why we sleep and that, that book has yeah. been discounted a lot too so i yeah. know that's okay and that's okay mm -hmm. i think that people want a bible for everything and yeah. the yeah. truth is somewhere in the gray you know they that's don't call it. It, they don't call it gray matter for nothing you know i've seen it in mm -hmm. the lab but ain't gray you know, like <laughs> I read that. It's, it's it's somewhere in the middle, and I think that people want truth to be. This is the facts. These are the facts exactly. that are undisputed, and I really do mm -hmm. think that when it was someone says to me, "Well, Kathy, why are you allowing people to exhale through their mouth?" I'm like, because it works for them. Right now, yeah. it works, and they are working, yeah. and they're happy, and their system is balanced. It works. But if someone came to me and they had enormous jaw tension after they snatched. I'm going to tape their mouth shut and lighten the load and see if I can get them to harmonize their seven diaphragms a little better. So I do think it's a, it's a case by case basis. And it's not, I mean, we could take principles from these books, the great principles from the books and then question everything, everything, everything. What I say, what Gorinder says, what, what Jude says, everything. And then think for yourself and, and what works for you and let it be okay to be wrong or right. Who cares? And there's no wrong or right. It's gray. Yeah. So enjoy the gray. Use your gray matter and enjoy the gray. Love it. Yeah. Exactly. Super helpful. Because, exactly. oh. Jude, that might be a good time for, like, you know, the questions around pelvic health and core stability and stuff like that you were wondering about. So, as a Pilates teacher, I get a lot of, why don't you teach belly button to spine and pull your pelvic floor up? And it's like, <laughs> and I, I, have, I, have, I, I have the quickest answer. It's, it's, Please tell me. Tell me to tell right. it. We, 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 teach, we currently started teaching it in our ID1 classes, and it's going really well. People hate it, okay. but, then you'll, but then you'll love it, okay? So I asked the patient, why do you pull your belly button to your low back? What, what is their typical answer? I asked, I turned the question on them. Why, why do you because think that's how back? I stabilize my core. That's what I get. It's like, why don't you Great. teach so, that? So, you know? what, so what, what's a stabilized core mean? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't. So what's, I, what's, their, I, what's their answer? Like, what's their answer? Typically, uh, ab, it, it, ab activation. Ab, right? ab. Yeah, pulling okay. my abs to so, straight help me my spine. Okay, so um, they, we pull our belly button to our low back to stabilize the spine. Great. So you're you're feeling ab activation, but our vertebrae in the lumbar spine are wedged and bigger on the anterior. So a stable lumbar spine is one that's slightly extended. 
So when you flex the belly button to the low back, you actually increase discogenic pressures on the posterior and put someone at risk for more chance of disc herniation. So you pull your belly button to the low back, destabilizes the core, because you are limiting your lower doses when it's under load. So I just, I turned the question on them. I'm like, well, what's the stable core mean to you? Uh, ab activation. What's ab activation do? It stabilizes my lumbar spine. The lumbar spine's more stable in a load shared extended position. So this is why we're maintaining a load shared extended position. And then they're like, got it, Dooley. Okay, great. Fantastic. I never make them wrong. Never make them wrong. Just, just, no, just ask them. of course not. Just, just ask yeah. the question. Just ask them, like, what, what, what does it mean to you? And that's exactly yeah. what I do with all of my students. I'm like, what does it mean to you? I'm just curious. Like, what's it mean to you? Almost yeah. always I get the same answers because they've been parroted. They think lumbar spine stabilization is belly button to low back because some other Pilates teacher that wasn't as anatomically knowledgeable as Jude had told them it was right to do it. Mm. Or they felt their abs, and if you feel your abs, you're more stable. Let me let me tell you what, I've treated a lot of six packs that don't go away when they inhale, that have lumbar discs skeet shooting out their backs when they deadlift. So uh, it, it really doesn't mean stable. Stable lumbar spine is maintenance of lordosis under load. Can, can you explain the pelvic floor? thing as well yeah everyone does pulling pull up, up on the pelvic floor pull, in, pull up pull up pull up pull up and that, i'm like no no don't so, pull up, so, so, pull I, up. so i asked that because they were taught that too they think that's right because they were taught that right the pelvic yeah. floor does not pull up the pelvic floor does not pull up when do you ever see a trampoline go up you don't see it go up you only see it go down and then go back to anatomic position so i tell them to go home and jump on a trampoline and tell me when the trampoline goes towards the ceiling <laughs> when does it ever go towards the ceiling? It never goes towards the ceiling. So the pelvic floor is no different than a trampoline. It, it has a, a maintenance of certain amount of eccentric load. It's on coils. Yeah. That coil is called the tendinous arch of levator ani, right? And so when you step down on it, that's intra-abdominal pressure that's breathing in. So when you breathe in, it yeah. goes down. You want it to go down, not up. And then as you start to exhale, it's going to return to its anatomic position. And the pelvic floor is not a bicep. It doesn't go up, down, up, down, up, down like that. <laughs> it's, under, it's, it's a trampoline. And a trampoline is not a bicep. It's always under this certain amount of eccentric load. So the, the pelvic floor's job as a biped is to contain your organs. And if you're pulling up, that's not containing your organs more. No. It's not. No, your no, ability no. to go up and down maintains the organs. So I just tell them... Go home, jump on a trampoline, and tell me when the trampoline actually goes to the ceiling. And when it goes to the ceiling, I'll let you pull up on your pelvic floor. <laughs> <laughs> we just have to reverse gravity, it. and then we're all good. I love it. Because this it's, is the stuff that I try and out. say. Yeah. Has anything, that was all I was going to ask you as well. With the pelvic floor, has a, you know how you're saying there's not been a lot of research, but this is what we know. Has there been it's more hard. research in the in the past few years, or is it the same as we've known? It, it, there's, there's research on it. Probably the better research is done by Diane Lee, where she talks about transverse abdominus activation. She talks about the system right. going down and going up. Right. The, the reason why it's hard to do research on pelvic floor is because it's hard to do surface EMG on it. And you certainly don't want to needle EMG it uh, because you got organs nearby. So surface EMG mm. is so hard to do there. And it's innervated by, you know, S4, S5, as far as motor innervation, but proprioception comes from S2, S3, S4, visceral afferents into sympathetic. It's really complicated. And so it's hard for your body to know the difference between pelvic floor and adductors, pelvic floor and obturator internus, pelvic floor and piriformis, uh, pelvic floor and your organ. 
it's just it's it's tough to to research and so i think that's the paucity of focus on it uh, also because two-thirds of all people that have pelvic floor disorders are female and mm. i'm going to pull the patriarchy card research is driven by money and money is driven typically by dudes in white suits that are white uh, in america usually so uh, if, if we have like a women's health issues don't get a lot of money hmm. i've read about this yeah i think there's yeah. cra crazy potential to get money but mm. like yeah. if you have like you have like 50 million people suffering from pelvic floor disorders you know you think that you could throw some money at that problem make some cash off that problem but it, it you have to have people that are in money that care about the problem and mm. uh no offense to the guy on this group but you're not who I'm talking about because you're in this smaller percentage. But you take old, cogity, rich white guys that are have a lot of money and they're not really throwing it at pelvic floor issues. So because it doesn't matter to them personally or to them professionally. So I think that's going to change. Yes. I think as, as hmm. women develop more power in politics, they develop more money in, and, and research is very political, very political. Yeah. So right. it, it, it's we don't want it to be. We want science to be free of research, mm -hmm. uh, free of, of that because it's research, but until, unless science, if science is linked to money, it's always going to be linked to politics. So, and it is linked to money in a big way. So yeah. that part sucks. Uh, has the research really grown in pelvic floor? No, not really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's no. slow. Just, just like the research of migraine is really slow to grow. Like okay. it, that, that's actually happening though. There's some things happening. So I think that we have to just keep spreading the word and we can be part of the change we want to see. Great. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it. Yeah, I know. Is the, um, so like, so on there, there's a couple of things there, which like people, what people are commonly doing, and they're getting wrong. So pelvic floor pulling in TVA, uh, like abdominal wall pulling in. What other things do you see that the average person like you commonly see that the average person is doing incorrectly, which they think is actually helping their health and fitness issues? Squeezing the shoulder blades together in the back to like hmm. straighten their spine. And I'm like, no, your thoracic spine is kyphotic. We want kyphosis. We want load shared kyphosis. And they're like, what the heck does that mean, Dooley? Well, we want your low, you want your low back to curve towards the front. We want your mid back to curve towards the back. And that balances hmm. your neck. And the way I describe it is like, what does your mattress coil look like? And they're like, it's a coil like this. I'm like, well, the reason your spine does this curve is so it can handle three times more axial compressive loads from gravity and from ground force contact. So your body is not a straight spine, it's coiled. And so we want that thoracic coil. And so stop telling people to squeeze their shoulder blades together in the back. You're asking the shoulder to do a job of the spine for one thing, and then you're stealing the dynamism of the shoulder girdle. Second, you are straightening the thoracic spine when it wants to be kyphotic. You know, don't we want load share between the cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and, and sacrococcygeal spines? We want that share. And what I'm teaching, it's very foreign to them for me to say to them, mm -hmm. don't don't tuck your pelvis underneath you to squeeze your glutes. Don't squeeze your glutes all the time. Don't squeeze your shoulder blades together all the time. Stop telling people to tuck their belly buttons to their low back. Just stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop telling people to pull their their pelvic floor up. Those are not anatomically correct. I have yeah. never seen my dog tuck his tuck his pelvis underneath unless he was pooping in a quadruped <laughs> position. Okay, so no, uh, so no, no, no. And uh, the belly button, the belly button tucked to the back. I think that's going to go away a little bit. You know, hmm. uh, that more of the the 
the, the super stiffness from Stu McGill is is a little bit more popular, and even I don't even know how I feel about that these days. Like I, I'm really questioning a lot of what I learned, and, and trying to. I want people to be a little bit more relaxed, you know. Yeah. Like there's, oh, they don't need. You can't yeah, build exactly. tension from a place of tension. You can't build mm. tension from a place of tension. You can only build it from a place of relaxation. So you, you know, um, my Tai Chi yeah, teacher used to say, "Relaxed means ready, not." And not I love that. Yeah, relaxed is exactly. ready for what's next, and 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 that that is a, a hard one. But I think that that's a good place to start with people. Stop, stop squeezing your shoulder blades together in the back. Stop mm. tucking your belly button to your low back. Stop pulling your pelvic floor up. Stop squeezing your butt cheeks all the time. Neck long, chin tuck, chest wide, ribs down, hips even. Like that's all I want from you. Neck long, chin tuck, chest wide, ribs down, hips even. Right? That's it. Start there. I can't tell you how many times I hear that in my sleep. Honestly, <laughs> how many times my <laughs> clients hear in my sleep, here in their sleep yeah. as well. That long, chin tuck. That's excellent. Here you go. Is uh, the Dewey life tips? Stay right there. 100%. Easy. Keep it yeah, easy. That's so there's um, so then that leads me to a couple of questions from uh, our listeners. So first one's from Fiona. So thanks for submitting this question, Fiona. And uh, besides, so her question is: besides nutrition, sleep, hydration, managing stress, like are there any small things we can do on a daily basis to help our brains be happier? Sure. Uh, five tens in the morning upon waking. Uh, change the light, uh, you know, use incandescent bulbs, uh, get sunlight, you know, at 10 and 2, try to get some sunlight, unprotected sunlight for a little while. You can choose if you want to do the sunscreen thing a little bit later if you're doing it for longer. Um, you know, whatever's happening to you, make it okay. Wherever you're at, be where you're at. Don't wish you were somewhere else. Just stop it. Yeah. it it's, it's a recipe for unhappiness. Um, whatever you're doing, be, be there now. Uh, would be my best mm. advice. Take chlorella, one of the most high nutrient dense foods on the planet. Uh, even if I'm having a bad food day or if I eat Taco Bell, which does happen on occasion, I'm not going to beat myself up about it. You know, I'm going to yeah. take, I'm taking chlorella, take, I take, you know, berberine. Uh, people have glucose problems. Uh, like there, there's a couple of, you know, things that you probably should do and, and just, you know, look at, you know, where your body is and what it's missing and give it to it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Sound. It's like, it's like straightforward stuff as well. That's the, that's the beautiful thing. That's the beautiful thing about it. And then, um, so another sweetheart. listener. Yeah, exactly. Not stupid, Not sweetheart. No, <laughs> never. <coward>. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. So the second question was from Maeve. Uh, so thanks for your question, Maeve. Um, she's, hers is about approach to failure. So her question is from both your heart and your mind, how can you understand it when you fail? How can we ensure we don't become fearful of repeat or use a negative motive to push us? And how can we use past failures to motivate us in a positive way? Stop thinking failure is bad. Mm. My, my worst board, board score was anatomy. My second worst board score was acupuncture. Like they don't have to be like, stop repeating your mistakes by learning from them first. We appreciate them first. People are fearful of repeating their failures because they're fearful of them and like stop being fearful. And appreciate the fact that sometimes I'm a big dumb idiot, and I, I call myself. I don't try to do negative talk. I'm just kind of like, well, that was kind of goofy, dooly, and then you know try to spin it another way. But laugh at yourself a little bit more. Like one of the secrets to my marriage is that we're constantly laughing at each other and and, and teasing, teasing each other. And she's back. My computer battery died. Ah, <laughs> uh, there's, there's there's something. There's... <laughs> 
so um she, you know she was talking about failure mm. um, yeah don't don't freak out about failure basically i'm super good at it i'm super good at failing i feel all the time of danny and anna know how much i fail in immaculate section i'll trip on my words and and I'm like, oh, man, I said that wrong. And Anna's like, I didn't even notice. Your faces <laughs> yeah. are so much louder to you than anybody else. Yeah, 100%. So it's just, I think I'm getting better at just laughing at myself and just knowing that I'm imperfect and BFA, mm. I'm imperfect. Um, Love it. Yeah. I, I think a good thing to do if you really want to learn from your failures to write it down. Mm. So, like, write it down in your phone. Write it down in a journal and say, I did really bad time management today or I really flipped out on my kid and I don't want to do that again. Like what what mm. what what can I do differently next time? How can I spend it next time? I've That's learned great. a lot from, from writing it down and just looking at it from a different lens. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think so easy on yourself. Why do you so hard on yourself all the time? Like, you know, yeah. I think yeah. self love is a really Thing, and you're gonna fail. You're gonna screw up. You have to, you know, like um, and if you have a support system around you that that can say like, you know, it's okay. Like maybe reach out to a counselor or reach out to a friend and tell them about your failure. Like I really sucked at this today, and I don't want to be embarrassed about it. I I don't want to mm -hmm. be fearful of it in the future. I want to be okay with yeah. messing up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. It's definitely yeah. It's definitely about reframing your relationship with making mistakes and making and like assuming that things are a failure. Because mm. you know you talk about it in the courses all the time as well. It's like um, you you failed a muscle test. Great, that's your opportunity for your brain to awesome. go. What the hell just happened? All right, I need to I need to sort yeah, this out. I high five them. And yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Like yes, this is awesome. Yeah. This is like, this is really so, good information. And it's not that blind optimism crap. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's acknowledging that exactly. failure is just as important and the only way the brain really learns. So, you know, mm. it's, it's, it's okay. And, and, and you know, it, you don't have to, you don't have to be so serious about it. Just yeah. have fun. Yeah. I mean, right. on that, so sometimes I wonder about whether I'm blindly optimistic about this. And again, it's something I want you to, uh, want you to uh, weigh in on. Um, my question essentially is, under what conditions would lower back pain be unrecoverable? Because I've thought about Zero. this and I'm thinking if, yes, <laughs> well, that's, well, that's uh, the answer I was hoping yeah, for as well. Just, I, need, I, need that, I need that confirmation bias, right? Because yeah, right. Um, I've seen the degree of people who have suffered and, and I'm like, it's, I think the one, like basically the people who have the hardest time getting out of there are the ones with the associated depression, the essentially get addicted to the painkillers. They're told, um, they, they've only seen like 2% of the rehabilitation model, i.e. go to the general yeah. practitioner and uh, they'll give you an MRI and then that's it, you've got to live with the problem. They just have no idea that there's so many layers to this and the way that you yeah. approach it. Um, like, so, I mean, I don't know how we fix that problem because like how do we make it so that people know that there's a lot more out there than just going to see a doctor and then that's it you get your diagnosis and go take some painkillers mm -hmm. and um and then convincing people that um as bad as your problem is right now 
there is a solution out of it because there's some people who are really, really suffering. So yeah. what, how do, how do we, how do I mean, we essentially is, this, do this that? is my, this is my field. Like people don't come to me when mm. they feel good. Uh, yeah. and my Thank job you. is, my job is like yours. It's a really hard one. Like people come to me with MRIs and I'm very good at reading MRIs, very good at reading these reports and explaining mm. what's happening that, but they've also had people say, like one of my patients has a, a supraspinatus tear, it's a, a partial thickness tear, and he has a sloping acromion, like no big deal. My first question was, he, he very, very much pain on his right side. And he, and he said, mm. and I, my first question to him was, well, what's the left side look like? Hmm. And, and, the doc, and he said, well, the doctor didn't take the left side. And I'm like, well, do you know in, in the vast majority of, of research studies, they show that you have the same, it's a very similar, if not the same findings on both sides, both the asymptomatic side and the symptomatic side. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, have you been told that you need to get surgery, cortisone injections? Yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. that, that's an option. But I, I'm confused on why one side hurts and one doesn't when typically the findings are pretty similar on both shoulders. Why mm-hmm. the right? And so... Yeah. I try to get them asking those questions for themselves. It's not my job to, I think that too many doctors say, well, this is the MRI findings. You need surgery to correct this. And I'm like, okay, you're so far gone. You're far gone. It's like far gone. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, I have people that with worse MRI findings with you that have no pain though. And I would challenge Hmm. that you have similar MRI findings on the other side of your shoulders. So, what's the difference? The difference is chemical. It's chemical. A lot of it is chemical. Why you feel it, where you feel it is biomechanical. Why you feel the intensity that you feel it is never biomechanical. It's almost always chemical. And so then you start talking about the complication of chemical cascade. The fact that, that pain actually is a process of a healing part of the immune system. But the immune system is activating, you know, all these mast cells get released, you get vasodilation, you get histamine, like, and these things promote activation of nociceptors, pain receptors. And so pain is chemical. It's typically a chemical sensory experience, not a necessarily just a biomechanical experience. It can be part of it. So telling someone that they're, they're, they're never going to recover because of what they see on an MR is not only erroneous, to me it's mm. malpractice. That to me is like limiting someone to like, I have, you know, grade four enterolisthesis of my L4, L5, I have to get surgery. And I'm like, well, I've treated people that have grade four that don't. So I know that that's not necessarily true. If that's, if that's your story and you're sticking to it, I will support you in whatever decision you make, but it's mm-hmm. not the whole story. And my job is to teach them that there's more to the story is not to tell them what to do. They'll ask me, what should I do? And I'm like, I have no idea what you should do. You need to, that, that's the first time probably somebody has said that to them. Because when they go to a doctor, the doctor feels pressure to say, mm. to tell them what they should do. That's not what the doctor's supposed to do. Doctor means teacher, not fix my garbage, right? It's, it means teacher. So the doctor's job is you have the option of surgery, you have the option of rehab, you have the option of medication, you have the option of lifestyle change, you have the option of taking June's body class, you have the option of working with Grinder on training. You, you have these mm. options. Which ones would you like to choose for yourself? No one says that. They go to the doctor and they say, well, I recommend surgery for you. Hmm. That's a recommendation, but not a demand. No one's beyond rehabilitation. No one. And I've seen cases where people also 
get surgeries, get injections, and then they're really disappointed when they don't yeah. solve the problem. And then, yeah. then, they're not, then they're like, oh, I can't do anything for you. I've had patients, had doctors say, well, I can't do anything for you. You're too mm-hmm. high risk for surgeries. What do you do for someone who's high risk in surgery because they have a respiratory pathology and they can't do, they don't want to do anesthesia, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're allergic to certain anesthesias. They, they, you're high risk, so I don't want to do the surgery. What do, the, what do those people do then? They're just screwed no they're going to do all the other options they have they're going to explore nutrition they're going to explore light they're going to explore meditation they're going to explore a lot of things and uh, i think that our job is to help them know what they can explore whatever they decide is great i'd never make a surgery a bad idea if they want to do the surgery they'll do the surgery i have a couple of patients that are getting surgery next week and we've, we've improved their surgical outcomes by doing everything we could in advance and then they decided to do this or they decided it's their choice that's the power they have the power to make that choice they have the power to change their entire lifestyle change everything else too and frankly i'm doing all that first before Mm -hmm. i go under a knife yeah sing it yeah that's powerful really is i think um I think there's like I think the only real like public example of it is um, someone like Brian Carroll, the the powerlifter. Yeah. And uh, so I, I I encourage people who have lower back pain and think that they can't recover from it to read his story because if there's somebody who's a machine like this guy who's mm-hmm. lifting thousands of pounds of weight on a daily basis, um, because he's a powerlifter or a strongman, no, he's a powerlifter I think, and then he splits his sacrum. He has a couple of uh, um, heinous looking um, disc herniations and you look at his MRI and you think that looks really bad but then mm-hmm. he just went through a uh, he just did his rehabilitation and then mm-hmm. he cam- comes back and he's a world record holder of a bunch of lifts after that so the point is is you that is a that's if there's a clear example of you're never beyond repair that is it and that's pretty much the only public example that i know so you can look up his story if, uh, if anybody's example. interested in doing it it's a yeah. really great example there's more than that there's there's way more examples mm. than that and and um one of my patients he had a, a really bad discarniation affecting the l5s1 nerve root loss of his foot foot drop and he said to me, I didn't say anything. He said to me, I'm not doing surgery. My surgery surgeon is, is really pressing me. He says in six weeks, if I don't have improved foot function, then, then, I, then I need surgery. He says, Kathy, I'm not doing surgery. So I have six weeks. Yeah. So he's like, duly, we have six weeks. What are we doing? Hmm. And so nice. he changed his entire lifestyle, changed the way he trained, changed the way he ate. Uh, he did all my rehabilitation multiple times a day, and he uh, restored. His, he restored, you know, about seventy-five percent of his foot function. He goes back to the surgeon. The surgeon says, "How did you do this? It's a miracle." He's like, "It's not a miracle. I, I did rehabilitation, and I'm not doing the surgery. Like I told you before, I'm not doing the surgery." And so, people just they 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 give their power away. Don't yeah, give your power, power away, and certainly yeah. don't give it to a white coat. Nothing against doctors. I'm just saying that a lot of doctors. They are willing to accept someone's power, and there's you have options besides surgery, and no one's beyond rehabilitation. Yeah, something to consider. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Some people don't want power. Some people don't want it, so they give it away. They're like, "Just solve my problem, mm-hmm. doctor." And I'm like, "That's fine. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to be that kind of doctor ever. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take your power. I'm not going to accept it. Mm-hmm. You're. I'm going to throw it right back at you." If you don't want to work right. with me, fine. You don't have to work with me. Go do mm-hmm. go do your thing. It's it's. I don't lose sleep at night because you're not coming to see me, and I'm sure you don't lose sleep at night because you're not coming to see me. So, 
Meet people do you find that they come back? Do you find that they come back, the people so, you don't know? I, I don't keep stats, really. Um, right. I only focus on the people that come back. Um, yeah. And, you know, I have people that have looked me up on the internet or whatever, and they're like, oh, you know, she's got some, you know, whatever resume. I don't even know what that means. Like, you, you can only reach who you can reach. And, you know, like, you can come in and have an amazing life altering experience if you want one or come in with an expectation that I'm going to do something that you don't want. Right. I don't know. It's mm. different. And then mm. tell me that it was an awful experience. And never come back or maybe never tell me at all and never come back. And I don't lose sleep over any mm. of it. Like I just, yeah. I am um. only here to help who I can reach and who I can help. And mm. that's part of my happiness and part of my stamina and part of my joy. Part of the reason I can sleep at night is I don't fret about things I can't control. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And like, and there's, um, there's another realm there as well where, there's people who have the ability to take their power back, but they don't know a lot about it. It's a, it's a different realm, and it's um, it's to do with mental health and um, and psychedelics, basically. Because I've, I've listened to uh, your talk on eating disorders and the neuroscience of it as well, and um, and then you touched upon um, mm -hmm. psychedelics in that talk. Yeah, right, cool. Because I saw it like it was literally, it's been something that's been on my mind to talk to you about. And then I realized that you're doing the talk on it tonight, the very day we're going to be having a conversation. And uh, so I was, I was wondering about it uh, in yeah. the context of basically not just uh, like tra trauma recovery, because that's where a lot of the research is going into, but just general brain health and mental health. Like uh, what, uh, what's, um, what's, what's going on in there? What do, you, what do you have that you can share with us in that regard? Oh, I have a, a lot of data collection, obviously, because we're talking about it with the collaborative tonight and next week, but um, a personal, a lot of personal experience. And uh, I mean, my eating disorder is basically cured by it. So uh, when right. you know, conservative methods failed with antidepressants and cognitive behavioral therapy, those things didn't work for me. And I really wanted them to. I was trying to save my own life. And um, yeah, MDMA was uh, jolted me. And then a second dose was basically pretty curative. And uh, it's just psychedelics help you to experience, re-experience trauma, like experience it mm. in a different way and through a new mm. lens and one that's not debilitating to you, that one that where you can see a solution. And I mean, psychedelics are, they are the future. They, they really? are 100% future. They, there's no way that they can't help be a major part of the curative process of depression, trauma. Uh, they help, there's a litany of, of, of really good um, lit reviews on the work with autism, uh, on yeah. the, the anxiety based with end of life processing. Um, just, I, I can't speak highly enough about them and, uh, and their potential to not only help but cure anxiety and depression in a way that um, at least give you the tools that you need to be able to, to help yourself to see things mm. from a different lens. Are they microdosed, Cassie? Are they, are they um, microdosed, the, the levels, or is it, is, it, is it kind of individualized? Uh, I think uh, the microdosing, the, the lit reviews on microdosing are really, really small. Right. Um, I do think there's potential with microdosing. Um, I think that macro probably has to be inserted in there to, to, to make a huge breakthrough uh, for people. Right. 
um, which is why I think people go to Peru for ayahuasca for the DMT experience. I think that's, uh, but I, and I have had, I've, I've had, you know, six, seven major experiences on macro dosing, uh, that have been very life altering. If you approach it from a therapeutic standpoint, the problem is, is that it's illegal in a lot of places to do Mm. with a therapist. And so you have to Mm. have a a rogue therapist really willing to work with you. That's willing to jeopardize everything they worked for to work with you. And, um, and it's such a travesty and, that's why we're trying to get some more of the information out there to anyone we can. They have such a stigma and it's a 50 year old mm-hmm. stigma. And Johns Hopkins has collected a litany of research on, you know, MDMA and PTSD and, and LSD and psilocybin mm-hmm. and yeah. the way that they can really change depression and anxiety and to not, to not supply that to the public to me is criminal. Mm. Yeah, completely. Absolutely criminal. Mm. Yeah. Again, education goes far. Yeah. Is it's like putting the power just, back it's, in. It's not just for Grateful Dead concerts. It's not just for. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just for tripping out. You know, like it's, yeah. the stigma behind it is, is insane because it's, yeah. it's a rewiring of the brain. They, you know, wow. there's. I mean, if you could tell someone, we've looked at SRIs and the increased risk of homicide, suicide, uh, gastrointestinal problems, um, and, and we just accept that as okay. And then we have hmm. uh, the ability to use. LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, even ketamine now is accepted. But like the other ones, really? like we, we don't see their potential in, in solving the problem without the I mean, LSD has virtually no side effects. You know, yeah. they create they no depletion of nutrients. I mean, MDMA has mm. some depletion, which we'll talk about some risk associated with it. But when it comes to right. adversity, there's minimal uh, pieces of adversity, especially in a supervised environment, it would be. I was going to ask, yeah. N- next to zero. Mm. And so it's yeah, just. It's incri- I, I just find it to be really criminal. So instead, so mm. instead of being mad about it, I just want to maybe help people think, Change it. think about it from a different lens. Yeah, hundred percent. Change like, it. Yeah, there's. <laughs> what, yeah. Whatever there's, works, can. Yeah. Yeah, completely. There's this. It's it's yeah it's just it's it's education again it's like you were talking about earlier about putting the power back into the the patient's hand or just people's hands basically it's like here you go choose the route that's going to work best for you as um and I think yeah with with that because I guess part of it yeah it's just purely been a stigma it's just you think you're messing with your brain wiring so you think oh man there's no there's no turning back from something like that I think there's a lot of fear that's associated with it mm. but. Um, uh, but yeah, like it's I think stuff bad. that you're doing. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> damn straight. There's no. But in a great back. way. There's no going back. <laughs> yeah. in, a, yeah. in a great way. Like I, I, it's shocking mm-hmm. how people think. You know, oh, if I do this, there's no going back. There's no going back to the bad way uh, mm. of seeing it. It's it's an enlightened mm. way of of seeing it. This is people want enlightenment. They want a glimpse. Mm-hmm. Here's your tool. Yeah. 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 Um, we yeah, just exactly. we just probably That's need to titrate. If, if we started, if we start with, yeah, if we start with microdosing and and titrate people up to a macro yeah. rather than just scaring mm-hmm. the crap out of them and saying, "Here's your macro," I, I think that yeah. maybe that's a solution to it. Is just because micro, you barely you barely feel anything, you know. Like so, you're mm-hmm. like, "Oh, okay, this isn't so bad," and, and maybe titrating it up to more of a a a, a, a macro dose would be ideal. 
you know, mm-hmm. rather than just, you know, hey, have fun at the party and, and you know, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that an education is necessary. And it is, you know, you have the, the people that are designing your apps on your phone and, 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 and technology advancing as fast as it is because people in Silicon Valley are uh, on, you know, microdosing LSD. Then, you know, really? you have to start to think about like, well, why am I not, why am I not, why am I not doing this? <laughs> yeah. Why, what, yeah. what, is, what do they have that I don't have? Not, yeah. Maybe the microdosing <laughs> LSD. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's something, yeah. Well, yeah, it's something to think about. It's just, you know, I widening think. out, like, yeah, widening out your, it, it's just, we came back to earlier of losing the judgment so much and just losing the mm-hmm. the feeling of being wrong or right yeah. and, and expanding yeah. your idea of of the potential. I mean, how how much mm-hmm. research do we have to collect before it's mm-hmm. before it's acceptable? There's way more research that's positive about psychedelics than there is about antidepressants. And we sell in America, mm-hmm. we sell eighty billion dollars worth of antidepressants a year. And there's more positive collective research with less side effects on psychedelics than mm-hmm. and when does it come about money or, or when, mm-hmm. when i mean i i'm just i'm confused <laughs> I, it, it yeah. starts to it starts to approach crimi- criminality at some point yeah it made it criminal to use psychedelics but really the criminal act is to uh, hold it back from us and hold us hold back the education mm-hmm. about it Mm. This is amazing. Um, Kathy, tell us, um, yeah, Yeah. tell us about um, Immaculate Dissection. So, like, you, Danny, and Anna have uh, co-founded Immaculate Dissection. (laughs) Tell us, like, who it's for and what it's about. Um, Immaculate Dissection was, uh, as I was teaching, you know, anatomy for years and, and teaching NKT for years, I was noticing uh, a paucity of ability of taking anatomy and putting it in front of somebody and know what to do with it. Like people can mm. memorize charts or they could even just the body and they couldn't uh, tell me like what something, when they had someone in front of them, how to change it. And so there was mm. this big missing piece. Like the NKT people didn't, you know, really know how to palpate for something or they, you know, would call everything in the back QL or... Uh, and, and they didn't really know where to go with their muscle testing, which was yeah. like, okay, um, NKT is very powerful. It's really powerful. But if you're just mm-hmm. guessing all over the place, it, it didn't make sense to me to guess. So, and then I was like, I can help them with that. I can help them know where to go with their NKT a little bit easier by understanding uh, an assessment process based upon anatomy. And then the converse, I, I would have people that would read an anatomy chart to me and then I put somebody in front of them and they have no idea. Like they would tell me all the actions of TFL, but not tell me someone had a TFL problem. And, and right. I'm just like, oh, okay. You know, I think that I might be able to fill a hole here. And then Danny's ability to make to make things visual, because so many people are visual learners as a, a big percentage of the way that they learn. His ability mm-hmm. to to create a visual no one else could create was unparalleled. Uh, and mm-hmm. he really loved what yeah. Anna and I did as far as explaining the anatomy from a clinical perspective. So, I mean, I would put Danny up against most clinicians and he doesn't, he's not even clinically trained yeah. wow. <laughs> because he, he, you can see him in our Amazing. videos do, doing some of our work yeah. and, and I'm like, wow, I would put Danny up against my colleagues and to be able to like, if someone were in front of Danny, 
you know, he might get nervous for a second and say, oh, I'm not a clinician. And then once he passes past that ego and, and, and says like, oh, I know what to do and, and, and starts pushing him around and, and asking him the mm-hmm. right questions and, and, and knowing what to look for in an exam, um, I, I would put him against anybody because he understands the visual, he understands the clinical and um, he's able to put all those pieces together. And that's what we want to share with the world is how to make anatomy. Yeah how to take anatomy knowledge, understand it, to put it in front of somebody and know where to start. The worst words I ever hear from a fellow clinician is, where do I start? So mm. in ID, we say at the flow chart. So we yeah. give them a, a flow to follow and um, it helps them with their NKT, it helps them with their FMS, it helps them with their SFMA, it helps them with their DNS, helps them with Pilates, helps them with BJJ, helps them so with useful. And, and it just yeah. gives them a... Yeah, it gives them a, a standard operating system to use along with what, whatever protocol they're using. So people aren't ID certified. We don't ever want an ID no. certification. We want your ID to make your certifications easier to use and better. And we want everything you're doing to stay there. We just want ID to make it easier and better for you. That's what ID is for us. Hmm. I think it's, it's an excellent name as well. Yeah, it's an excellent name. What's ah, the future of ID? You. Any more courses? Anything? Or are you going to stick with the courses that you've got, uh, or have you got any plans for other other courses? Oh, of course. You know, <laughs> uh, we we are growing, and uh, I, I don't think we're going to have ID twenty one. We joke about that sometimes, but uh, I think we, ID 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 one through six are our base courses, and I think from there we'll just do master courses. Uh, I'm right now I'm developing the anatomy angel vestibular course and uh, people wow. tend to show us like what they want. Like people want a lymph course. They want uh, at a vestibular course. So those are the two that I'm working on right now. I basically just ask people, what do you need? What, mm. what do you guys crave? What, what do you need? How can, how can we help? And I think the biggest answers in life are just asking, how can you help someone? And you guys have given us the ideas. Like we started at one. We didn't know we would ever yeah. pass that. And then people were like, oh, they like it? Let's go to two. Let's go to three. Let's go to four, five, six. And um, awesome. I think that you guys will let us know how it grows. But right now, we have six base courses. We have two anatomy angels. We're growing the ID Collaborative, which is our you know, weekly lecture series on you know just basic t- topics from the world. Tonight's on psychedelics. The uh, And we're just going to keep growing from there, I hope. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. I hope amazing. so, too. Because um, uh, there's so much stuff that I don't know that I want to know about. Yeah. I've learned so Me much too. from you. Me so too. thank you. It's yeah. awesome. That's great, Kathy. We're uh, yeah. mindful of the time as well now. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's like, and you give yeah. us, give it to us. And I'm like, oh, there's, there's so much more here. I don't know. I want to know more. And you just, just yeah. keep coming back for more. <laughs> but um, yeah, like, yeah the, yeah, the time has just flown by. You're mindful of, uh, you yeah. know, you've got to. You got you did got to do the course tonight as well. So thanks so much for joining us. Yes, it's been uh, awesome to get your insights. Thank you. Amazing. And then yeah, for everybody who's thank out there so who's much. been listening, tuning in, it's um, yeah, it's great to have you. And so for everybody who's been listening in and tuning in, just tell us what you think. You know, get in touch with us. Um, how can people find you, Kathy? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, I was going to offer your crowd, the, the first person to email me, I'm going to send you guys one too, but the first person to email me uh, to drkathydooley at gmail.com, I'll send you out an ID poster. So I'll either send oh, you amazing. a gate poster or a nerve poster. Of course, I'll send these. 
yeah, you guys should send me an email so I can send you a poster. Uh, and, um, and, and just, you know, look at, just look at it and, 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 you know, start to investigate. But if you have anatomy questions, whatever, just send it over. You know, I love that stuff. Anything anatomical, I would, mm-hmm. I'd love to answer and, uh, and just, you know, shoot me, shoot me an email. I'll be yeah, right for there sure. for you. Amazing. Sounds Thank you good. So much. I will, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So make sure that, uh, people, people get in. Um, so yeah, thanks again for tuning in folks. Just tell us what you think of the episode. Make sure you don't miss out on this offer. Be the first to get in on that. And, um, yeah, we'll see you on the other side. Kathy, thanks once again for, for joining us. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye folks. Bye.